Let's turn, please, to Jeremiah. There'll be another few passages you might want to mentally note, or if you're a note taker, you might want to take notes on them. A couple of announcements. The schedule is for both nights this week, Wednesday and Thursday. We'll be meeting, and Thursday, a special night. Pastor Phil Henry will be bringing his Power Gospel Night, which is always a special time for the assembly to gather in fellowship. And uh, I think he's here, Phil. We thank God for your ministry. And that's Thursday night. Wednesday will be as usual. And there is an announcement, and that is that Paul and Colleen Matthews require, need teachers for the preschool. And if you're interested, either see Paul or Colleen, our faithful leaders, our Achilla and Priscilla of the children's school. And that's, so keep that in mind and don't just slough off that request. Pray and see if God gives you a little nudge. Just might. And again, if nobody responds, I might have to do it. And that means one of the kids will teach for me, I guess. So... Also, don't forget the bowl-a-thon. If you're not going to bowl, go and watch Pastor Brown bowl. He's a 300, 300 bowler, and you'll see what explosive strikes look like. And there are many of those in Romans. So, We've been fanning out in Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. I've sort of tested a theory here that all that Paul is saying in Romans, in one sense, can be distilled in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, and we were testing out that hypothesis, and it seemed to be panning out pretty good. As we fan out, it seems to pan out. Last night, before, just before I went to bed, I prayed according to, and it was a little after midnight, I think, I prayed according to Isaiah 50 and verse 4. I said, please, I have a message, Father, but waken my ear in the morning, as you did with Messiah that I may hear a word from you and that I may speak with the tongue of a learned disciple in the morning. And I should have specified what time to wake me up because it came at 5 o'clock. And so 5 in the morning, he woke in my ear. He wakened my ear (laughs) to hear. And these are the verses that he gave me. And they came resounding with some powerful spiritual truth. Now, all of the writings of the prophets, and that really frames the book of Romans, Romans 1, 2, and 16, 26, all of the writings of the prophets speak of Jesus Christ, God's Son, and God's Word, God's Logos. All of the writings of the prophets pop in the New Testament. They are Revealing, or they apocalyptically reveal a mystery that was kept silent for countless ages before the prophets penned their writings. And they were even kept silent, that mystery was even kept silent while it was in the writings of the prophets. But when Paul came along, and after Jesus Christ arose and ascended, that mystery began to be revealed in those very writings. So to start with, the first verse that came to me was from the Sermon on the Mount, as it's called. Jesus said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you 
so that you may be participants. Sons there means that you may have close association with your Father in heaven, who makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. And what struck me in this verse is that categories like good and evil, righteous and unrighteous, are human categories of viewing humankind. God sends the same sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the same rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous because to him humanity is all one. It's mankind that thinks in terms of a bifurcation of humanity between the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. Paul in Romans begs to differ with that binary view of humanity, saying all sinned. There is no difference. All have sinned. Being justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul speaks of a universal homardiology, universal sinfulness, and a universal soteriology. And Jesus Christ is that saving significance of mankind. And so... I thought of that, and then this verse, this is from the prophets, Isaiah 55, from Deutero-Isaiah, the second Isaiah, which is 40 to 55. This is as the close of what we call the second Isaiah, 55.10. Whereas the rain, or snow, comes down from heaven. Now here's the rain that Jesus alludes to, the rain, God sends rain. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends, that's the word, sends rain. For as the rain or snow comes down from heaven and does not return until it saturates the earth, making it germinate and sprout, yielding seed for sowing and bread for eating. In the same way, says verse 11, my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me until, and the Septuagint translation has eos or eos, until. You might find this word resounding in Luke 15.4 where Jesus speaks of a woman who loses a very precious coin and sweeps the house and searches until she finds it. She does not stop. She is unrelenting, as Vicky's song just told us. Unrelenting until she finds that coin. Then she rejoices and calls her friends together. Same word is used. That's actually for the sheep. The coin is verse 8 of Luke 15. The sheep, the lost sheep that the man with 99 has goes and finds and he searches until, eos, eos, until he finds the sheep. And he again, he rejoices. This is a picture of God who will not let one be lost. So, in the same way, my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me until until 
it has accomplished. The word is suntelo here, or suntelo, used also in Romans 9.28. I will do a short work on the earth and bring it all together quickly, he says. So teleo is where we get our word tetelestai, but soon means to bring together. It will not stop until it's brought together all of my purpose, which we know from Ephesians 1.10 is the purpose of summarizing everything, all beings in heaven and on earth in Christ. Jesus Christ was sent to the earth. He came down from heaven to accomplish God's purpose. He is the bread of life. And he said, my flesh is given to be bread for the world, the saving bread, the saving grace of Christ. So again, let's look at it, comparing it to Matthew 5, 44 and 45. For as the rain comes down from heaven and does not return until it saturates the earth and makes it germinate and sprout, yielding seed for sowing and bread for eating, in the same way my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me. Now we think of this as the word, as Jesus Christ is the word, and he came on a mission, and he did not return to the Father until he had completed that mission and said, mission accomplished, to tell us die on the cross. So what he accomplished well, we're just discovering what it means. Ever since 1978, I've been speaking about a thing called the finished work of Christ. Forty years later, I'm finally realizing just what that means. I'm seeing the horizon of that accomplishment. It will not return to me until it has accomplished that which I Desire. Another Greek word here that I want to look at because it will come up again, if not today, next Sunday maybe. Thelo, T-H-E-L-O. And the noun form of that is thelema, or thelema, T-H-E-L-E-M-A, long E here, thelema. You see this word throughout the scriptures. It's an extraordinary word because it combines two things, desire and will. Resolved will, but intense desire. It shows something about God that he does have pathos. He does have passion in his love. But his will means that it's resolved and unstoppable. And so he says here in the word is thelo. It, until it has accomplished that which I desire. That means what I desire and what I will. And succeeds in what I sent it to do. What did God send his word, the word, eternal word, the incarnate word, to do? God sent his son not to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. The Bible here tells me that that succeeds, that mission succeeds. So Malachi 4, let's look at that, or you can write it down. It says this, but to... But to you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will arise. There's the son that arises. You say, but it's only to those who fear his name. So it doesn't arise on the righteous and the unrighteous, just the righteous. 
Sounds like that, but that's not it. Look at, but to you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will arise. Same word for arise as Jesus uses in Matthew 5.45. He makes his son to rise. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ with healing. And healing there means salvation. Salvation in its rays. But to you who receive or revere my name, the son of righteousness will arise with healing, meaning salvation in its wings or its rays. Now, who are those who revere my name? says the Lord. Well, the last time I read Philippians 2, 9 through 11, which was an echo of Isaiah 45, 23, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will acknowledge faithful allegiance to me when the name of Jesus Christ is mentioned. Every tongue will revere him. The son of righteousness arises over all the earth. It does not skip a place. The son of righteousness rises on the righteous and the unrighteous, on the evil and the good, because that's, those are categories that men make. Paul attacks those human categories in Romans. He said, I'm a debtor to the wise and the unwise. Who calls them the wise and the unwise? The people that think they're wise call others the unwise. The strong and the weak. Who are the strong in Romans? Those who think they're strong in faith and call others weak. And the wise and the foolish, the righteous and the unrighteous. Again, Paul says there is no difference. The Greek and the Jew, the slave and the free, the male and the female, all sinned, being justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 23 and 24. So you say, how can you say that when the sun of righteousness arises with healing in its rays, that that means salvation? Because I can say it this way. Psalm 107, 20 says, he sent, the word is apostello, his word, that's logos, the same word as John 1.14, the word became flesh. He sent his word to heal them and rescued them, ruamai in the Greek, saved them from their destruction. If it was up to mankind and mankind's volition, their destruction would be the destiny of man. But God saves us from our destruction because what he wills goes, not what we will. What Christ said for himself, he said for us all, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And God's will is done, and he will do all his will. And it happens to be that God is willing that none should perish. It happens to be, on the positive end, that our great God and Savior is willing that all men, all mankind be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth is that truth that's embodied in his son. The knowledge of the truth. We've come to the end of an era with the death of Reverend Billy Graham. And I saw in the service, the funeral service, 
the end of another era, the era of the evangelical gospel. The evangelical gospel, and I'm not blaming anybody for it, but the gospel that calls for people's action resulting in salvation only complicates the situation of curvature in upon ourselves. Sin itself has a power. In Luke 18, it is starkly realized in the woman who's been over for 18 years. And Jesus spoke to her and she stood upright. The bending over is because of the curvature into ourselves that the power of sin causes. We can't rescue ourselves from that. We can't decide to repent from our sins. We can't be commanded to repent from our sins. We cannot be commanded to believe. There's nothing we can do. It has to be a divine action that instigates, inaugurates, and completes our salvation. The gospel of evangelicalism is dead. God has shed it like the skin of a snake needs to be shed because all it does is complicate the curvature in upon ourselves so that life gets 10 times more miserable as a fundamentalist Christian. And it makes you, your repentance, your belief, your actions, your witnessing, your praying, your activity be the issue when the gospel accentuates solely and completely the action of God in Christ, the Christ event, which continues in the Christ spirit in our lives. So it is God in us both willing and doing of his good pleasure. God in us both willing and doing of what he wills, what he wishes, what he desires. The gospel that needs now to hit hundreds of millions is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is universally saving significance for all. That's the gospel. And that's what needs to reach hundreds of millions of people. So we're studying in some depth a passage that seems particularly powerful to Paul, not only in Romans, but in throughout his epistles we see this bouncing. For example, in Ephesians 2.8, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That means a faithfulness that is totally outside of you. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not your own. Not of yourself, not of yourself, not of yourself. It's not your repentance. It's not your belief. It's not your turning. It's not your praying. It's not your admitting that you're a sinner. It's God's action in Christ. It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. And then it says, not of works, lest any person should boast. That is an echo of Jeremiah getting a little tired of some of these high-end scholars and theologians who write big theological books and reject the Pauline authorship of Ephesians and Colossians. They cut out little parts of Scripture that don't fit into their schema. And we're going to shut that down a little bit in the study of Romans. We are now studying a part of the prophets called Jeremiah which seems to distill much of what the apostle is saying. So far, we've gotten this far in, jo in Jeremiah 9.23. This is what the Lord says. The wise person must not boast in his wisdom. 
The strong person must not boast in his strength. The rich person must not boast in his wealth. We could say his or her on all those, of course. But now we get to boast. Instead, if someone boasts, let him or her boast that he or she understands and knows that I am the Lord who does mercy and righteousness where? On the earth. What's the horizon of his saving work? The earth. His intention, his wish, and his will. His desire because he has pathos, because he has passion. His desire is that he exercises mercy on the earth, the whole earth. And that's his will. He doesn't stop until he's finished. And that should be recognized. That's why I love the song that Vicki chose today about unrelenting love. His love is unrelenting. He doesn't stop until the last lost sheep is found. That's why Psalm 119 ends with its 176th verse. I am a lost sheep. Seek me. Seek me. You've got to seek me. So, having eradicated the boasting of the wise person of this age, of the strong, of the rich, we're now ready to fan out Jeremiah 9.24 in Romans. So there is a valid boasting in the eyes of God. The Lord speaks about it. In fact, he commands it. We're supposed to brag. And he says this, if someone boasts, let him boast. Let's say him or her boast that he or she understands. By faith, we understand, says Hebrews 11.3. And knows that I am the Lord who does mercy, who does mercy, does mercy and judgment. Now, mercy is a noun in the Greek. It's E-L-E-O-S, eleos. Let's just do it this way. That's how we'd say it in the English, trans, in the English transliteration. E-L-E-O-S. It's a noun. That's mercy. It's a noun. But mercy is also a verb because we have E-L-E-E-O, eleao. That means the doing of the verb. God is love. Love is a noun, but love is a verb. God loved the world so much that he gave his only eternally begotten son. So, Elias is a noun here. The Lord does mercy. In Jeremiah 9.23, in the Septuagint translation, we have the word poieo, which means to do, plus Elias, which means mercy. God does mercy. That's the first thing that you should brag about, that you know and understand what he does. He does mercy. And he does it on the earth. He does it in all the earth. That's the horizon, the extent of his mercy. God wants you to brag about that. But how can you brag about God doing mercy to all the earth if you don't even know what the gospel is? And if you've separated humanity up into the saved and the damned, the elect and the non-elect, the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the evil, because you've been eating from that tree all your life, 
eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil gives you the wrong kind of bifocals. It makes you see humanity divided. Paul takes care of that and shows all of humanity under a single representative named Adam. And then he sees all of humanity under a single representative named Jesus Christ, who gives rectifying life to everybody. God see, that's why he sends the sun. The sun rises, Jesus Christ, with salvation in its rays for the good and the evil, for the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends rain, which is the Lord Jesus Christ being sent to the earth, and it accomplishes its mission. It doesn't go back until it accomplishes its mission. It goes into the earth, and then it sprouts, just like Jesus did in death, burial, and resurrection. And when it sprouts, it gives seed to the sower. It gives bread to the eater. And the bread is Christ, the bread of life, which he says is food for the world. The world. The half gospel of evangelicalism is over. The era is over. A new era is, and that's one thing even proclaimed at the funeral of Billy Graham this past Friday, the one thing that stuck out to me more than ever, a new era of proclamation is beginning. But what they may have thought was that new era of proclamation is the proclamation of the same old evangelical gospel. It isn't. It's right that they prophesied a new era of proclamation has come, but it's the proclamation of the Lord who does mercy to all in Romans 11.32. Fleming Rutledge, who has been preaching for years and years and years, and in her 80s now, she said when she was growing up in church, she never heard a sermon on Romans 11.32. Never heard a sermon on Romans 11.32, which is God shutting up All people, Jews and Gentiles, all alike, under one category, disobedience, so that he might have mercy upon all. Then she said, what should be preached? The number of times that message should be preached is 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of messages should be preached on that. And I agree with her wholeheartedly. That's the climactic passage in Romans. Next to Romans sixteen twenty five to 27, that's the climactic passage. And it gives way to what? Oh, the depth of the wealth and the wisdom of God. Why would the rich man boast in his riches if the wealth of the wisdom of God is to show mercy to all? Why would the wise man, the sage, the philosopher, the scientist, or the theologian boast in his wisdom? When the depth of God's wisdom is toward the salvation of all, it's a saving wisdom. Makes all other wisdoms pale in comparison. So in Romans 32, we have just the verb, eleao, E-L-E-E-O. We have the verb. In Jeremiah, we have poieo, a verb, plus the noun. So we have doing mercy. Paul just combines the two ideas with the verb, He mercies all. He shows mercy, does mercy, and that way he turns elios, the noun, into a verb in Romans 11.32. We just have the verb. 
When you turn mercy, elios, into a verb, eliao, you have the same effect as the verb poiao and the noun elios. It is a doing of mercy. And it's done to all here, I read, in Romans 11.32, which is kind of an echo of, do you know and understand this God who does mercy in all the earth, who does mercy to all? You don't even know him otherwise. You can't know him in his essence. You can only know him in his act. And his act, he is a doer of mercy to all. Now, there's a spiritual gift which entails doing acts of mercy. It's one we don't usually hear about when we hear about charisma or charismata or spiritual gifts. You know what it's called in Romans 12:8? Doing mercy. It's a charisma in which a person does acts of mercy to alleviate a painful or oppressive condition. It's, doesn't, it's not reluctant. It doesn't hesitate. It just does it. It sort of acts like the Good Samaritan. It's quite the opposite of what I heard recently. Someone, these children that were massacred at that school. And I heard someone say on the news, well, I feel very bad for the victims, except for the one whose parents voted for Trump. They kind of got what they deserved. Now, those are the people that think that hate is so terrible. That's the opposite of mercy. That's the antithesis of Jesus Christ. That's the exact, and I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying mercy doesn't pay attention to a political affiliation of anybody. Mercy does not pay attention to Democrat, Republican, Independent. It doesn't pay attention. It sees misery. It alleviates the misery. It prays. It even prays for the persecutor. It even prays for the enemy because God doesn't see like we see. You've been told, love your friends, love your associates and hate your enemies. I'm telling you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But mercy... I think it's best illustrated. Let's just say that the requirement of this gift of mercy is hilara tote, which means hilarity, without hesitation or reluctance. It's done graciously, cheerfully. It means that the acts are done with pleasure in the doer, not as a burdensome duty. And that's what separates, for example, and I use this example often because I remember laying in a hospital bed for a week, a couple, a few years ago, and you have change of shifts. And one caregiver, I, I, I hope I'm not politically incorrect to still call them nurses, but one would be there and doing a cold duty and she does what she has to do. Another one, he or she may have this gift of doing mercy. What a difference it is. One could be a cold professional. The other can be a gifted, have the gifted charisma. That's what separates the nurse with this gift from the nurse with merely the duty of caring for a patient. Put in the shift, go on home. 
Consider Luke 16, 24, the rich man in Hades. What's he do? He asks Abraham to have mercy on him and to send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Because he says, I'm in agony in this flame. The simple act of cooling his tongue with a drop of water would be an act of mercy. Christ died for the ungodly. The parable that Jesus tells is the retelling of a folk tale. Jesus isn't teaching that there's an afterlife like hell. That's ridiculous. Jesus does not teach that one category of people dies and opens up their eyes in flames and the other one's up having a banquet with Abraham. That's not what he's teaching. He's retelling a famous folk tale that began in Egypt and was told just like people tell a joke. A minister, a rabbi, and a priest went into a bar, you know, that kind of thing. It's like the rich man died. And, of course, what Jesus is doing there is showing something very important. In the parable, which is a retelling of a folk tale, Abraham refuses because... There's an eternal gulf fixed between us. That's how the Pharisees thought. That's not how God thinks. Abraham, in the parable, refuses the act of mercy. In the parable, the retelling of the folk tale, Abraham refuses because of a fixed fissure, a fault, like the San Andreas fault between him and Lazarus. Such a gap does not exist. Christ died for the ungodly. In fact, all of Romans, the epistle, is to show that there is no division between the godly and the ungodly. Therefore, there is no withholding of mercy. Christ died for the ungodly. That says everybody. Romans 5, 6. It doesn't even say he died for the godly. That's because in God's eyes, there isn't a bifurcation of humanity into the godly and the ungodly. Everybody's ungodly. Christ dies for the ungodly. And guess what God does? He justifies or rectifies the ungodly. So if you're godly, too bad. He doesn't justify. He doesn't set you right. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's all there is. So, Christ died for those who, in their ungodliness, and we're going to get to Romans 18 pretty soon in the midweek. Christ died for the ungodly, which means he died for those who, in their ungodliness and unrighteousness, suppress the truth. One of the best suppressions of the truth I've ever seen is the evangelical gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. When I consider Billy Graham, I find no fault in him. And I find no fault in preachers who preach Christ, especially when Paul says, even if someone preaches Christ out of a wrong motive, they still preach Christ. But when you have a man like Billy Graham who preached Christ with the right motive and lived up to the light that he had, how can you find fault in him? I can't. 
Nor do I find fault in anyone who preaches Christ, even if their motives are wrong, even if they want to build a kingdom around themselves. They're preaching Christ. The Holy Spirit can use the message. But what I am saying is the content of a half gospel. And then some people have the audacity to call it a full gospel because they toss tongues in there which is a further suppression of the truth. And then they talk about pagan idolaters or people of other religions like Islam who suppress the truth when they're suppressing it in a worse way because they're using the name of Jesus to do it. And so the gospel comes to people who are already pressed down and curved into themselves and can't find salvation for it, and they're told they've got to repent and do a whole bunch of other things, which only furthers the curvature into themselves and increases the misery... And so you have the most miserable people on the planet called fundamentalist Christians or full gospel Christians or whatever they want to call themselves. So in Luke 16, Jesus retells a popular folk tale to overturn the self-righteousness and covetousness of the religious leaders who assumed that there is an eternal gulf fixed between them and others. In Jesus' retelling, it is they who are on the hell side of this thing. But there is no heaven and hell sides, even as Jesus Christ makes no distinction between the godly and the ungodly, the righteous and the unrighteous, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the evil and the good, the slave and the free, the male and the female. In a famous article, which I finally read, called The Worm at the Core of the Apple, it was written by a guy named Paul W. Meyer in a series of essays called The Conversation Continues. And he said this on page 69 of that book. He said, indeed, the depth to which any reading of Paul that clings to such a division between the godly and ungodly has misunderstood the apostle is sounded accurately only when one realizes, listen carefully to this, only when one realizes that the whole of Paul's epistle is but a single massive argument against the conventional uses of this distinction. The whole epistle of Paul is an argument against people's use of the distinction between the godly and the ungodly, the elect and the non-elect, the predestined to hell and the predestined to heaven, all the epistle of Romans argues against it. God puts everybody in a maximum security prison called disobedience, apathia, disobedience and unbelief, so that he might have mercy on all. You can brag if you know the God and understand the God who does mercy in the earth, which means mercy to all. We're speaking of the doing of the mercy of the Lord. Boast, if you understand, and know the Lord who does mercy, who performs mercy. Brag about it. Now, Romans reaches a climactic peak in Romans 11.32, where it is revealed that God intends to show mercy to all human beings. In fact, he already has in the Christ event. Father, forgive them. In the Christ event, in the finished work of Christ, the finished work 
of Christ. Should be familiar to some of you. Some of you go back as far as me and even further than me in this ministry. That means before November of 1978. The message I came here with is the message of the finished work of Jesus Christ. As the saving work of God in Christ. It has never stopped, although I've used different terminology. Now I understand the finished work of Christ. Only now we're finding the universal significance of that finished work. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, between wise and foolish, between weak and strong, between refined and barbaric, slave and free. Male and female, high-born, low-born, wealthy, poor, in between. God shows mercy to all by rectifying all of humankind, by gifting all of humankind with life, not just life, the life of the Son of God, whose faithful obedience to the death of the cross resulted in resurrection and justification for all in Romans 4.25. God, therefore, does mercy to all with cheerfulness. As Jeremiah 9.24 says, doing mercy is something he delights in. Look at the rest of that verse. In these things, I delight, he says. I delight in these things. Or we could say, these things are my will. He uses that word thelema, which is, again, a melding, a combination of desire and will. His desire is there because he's not an unfeeling, impassable, passionless God. But his will is there because he is immutable in his decree and in his truth and veracity. As Jeremiah 9.24 says, this doing of mercy is something he delights in, something he does willingly, cheerfully, not out of some sense of cold duty. Now, in Romans, we're dealing with a theological functional specialty called horizons. Among other definitions, horizons means a sphere of activity. Someone would say, well, that's outside of my horizon. That's outside of my sphere of activity or maybe outside of my pay grade, they may say. So it's not just what we see. It's a sphere of activity. It can mean a sphere of competence or a sphere of activity. So we would ask, what is the sphere of the action of God's mercy? Well, the Lord says it on the earth. Let your will be done, Father, on the earth as it is in heaven. How does he do it? He does it by his son being suspended between the heaven and the earth on the cross. For it's by the blood of his cross that God reconciles all things in the heavens and on earth. That's the horizon. You want to limit it? You want to call yourself a Calvinist and limit it? You want to call yourself a Lutheran and limit it? You want to call yourself a Roman Catholic and limit it? You want to call yourself a member of Tetelestai and limit it? The earth is the sphere of his mercy. He does mercy to all who live on the earth. 
and to all who are under the earth. Did you hear that? All who are under the earth. So that in the eschaton, when history comes to its final conclusion, every tongue, I could say, I think every tongue will be cooled by then. Every tongue will praise God in a chorus of universal praise. And guess what we discovered this week in Romans? The universal praise of all that has breath will be led by Jesus Christ himself. The chorus led by Jesus Christ. Why? Because first, every tongue, every tongue, including the rich man's tongue in the folktale, every tongue will openly praise me, God says in Romans 14.11. Romans 14.11. In the dative case there, the word ex homo means to sing praise. It means to revere the name. So if the son of righteousness rises with salvation and it's raised to all who revere his name, we find out that all will revere his name. In Philippians 2, 9 to 11, which as an echo of the prophets in 45, 23, which echoes into Romans 14, 11, as a chorus of praise. Every knee will genuflect willingly. Every tongue will acknowledge openly that Yahweh, the Lord, is Yeshua, Jesus. That's the moment when all the enemies will be placed under Christ's feet. But what does he do then? He turns and submits himself to the Father along with the redeemed creation. And that's the moment when he leads a chorus of praise to his Father, to the glory of God, the Father. He sings praises to his Father. And everything that has breath... All that have ever lived in all the times of history redeemed through his blood will join in the chorus led by the Messiah to God the Father of praise to him. As I live, God says, every knee will genuflect to me and every tongue sing praise to me. Led by Jesus Christ. The whole sequence is in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. All things placed under his feet. The last enemy is not placed under his feet. It's annihilated. It's called death. Because life would have been given to all humankind. In Adam, all die, but in Christ, all will be made alive. In Adam, all are condemned. In Christ, all are justified. Romans 15, 5, 18, and 19. And so all that has breath... We'll praise him. The last psalm, Psalm 150, says it. It's climactic. When death is destroyed, all the enemies are under his feet. Then the son himself submits to the father, worships the father, and leads the universal chorus to the father. Even all creation has been waiting for this day. And so... The universal praise will be sung by every tongue of those who are in heaven and on earth. Philippians 2, 10 to 11. In Revelation 5, 13, man, we hit this a little while ago. John says, I heard all of creation. I heard all of creation. Pan 
katisma, everything in creation in all of its times, that which is in heaven, he says, and on earth and under the earth. And John goes further than Paul. You see, he's competing with Paul on this one. And on the sea and every being under the sea and every being that is in them say blessedness and honor and glory and sovereignty to the enthroned one and to the lamb for the age that consists of endless ages. Amen. It seems that all creation means that God would have found the last coin. He would have searched and found the last lost sheep that he would have rectified the ungodly, that he would have rectified and set right the ungodly for whom Christ died. That's everybody. That has a sociological impact, incidentally. It has a political impact. It has a national impact. And that's what this gospel is going to do. So John hears the voice of all creation. So does Paul. Paul hears the voice of all creation groaning. Groaning. Mournfully like a mournful dove in the morning. Have you ever heard a mourning dove in the morning? It's mournful. It's, it's poignant. Probably the dove leads the chorus of the mourning and anticipation of creation because the dove symbolizes the Holy Spirit who also groans. The Holy Spirit groans and makes petitions to God that we can't even utter. That's not a gift of tongues. That's a gift of no tongues, no ability to speak, no ability to articulate what we want for those whom we love, what we want for this creation, what we want for ourselves even. The Holy Spirit groans. And Paul says, and we groan together with it. All creation is waiting for the emancipation that comes with the revelation, the apocalypse of the sons of God, in which all creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption. The cooing of the morning dove represents the groaning of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ with us. And then John sees that same creation singing in praise to the Father. The entire creation is mourning like the poignant cooing of the dove. This is the center toward which we are pressing from the right and the left flanks of Romans Romans eight nineteen to 23 hits pretty close to the dead center there. The entire creation is subjected for the time being, subjected for the time being, in anticipation of the revelation of the sons of God in glory. For them, at that time, all of creation will be gloriously emancipated from its present slavery to corruption. So we also groan with that creation right now. That's what we're doing now. The sufferings of this present time, however, are not going to be worthy to be matched up with the glory that follows. Romans 8, 18. Now we groan. Because we too await the glory of being clothed upon with immortality and incorruptibility. 
which only Jesus has now, and to experience the ineffable, glorious freedom of the children of God, which is freedom for which humanity is destined in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The will of God is to be done on earth as it is in heaven because Jesus was suspended between heaven and earth on the cross in the unspeakably shameful death to the end that God reconciles all beings in the heaven and on earth by the blood of his cross. So it is in this way and by this event that God cheerfully and without reluctance shows mercy to all. If God did not show mercy to all, he would not be fully respecting his son's shameful death. So a gospel that does not announce that falls short. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm not ashamed. So in closing, God does mercy. And the next thing he says, he does judgment too. In one sense, we could say that he does mercy because he does judgment. And that his judgment was a judgment of mercy. Even as in Isaiah 10.22, even what he calls the destruction of Israel overflows with righteousness, which means deliverance. The destruction of Israel overflows with deliverance. That means the shattering of the strong means his deliverance. Saul of Tarsus was strong. His strength was shattered on the outskirts of Damascus. Saul of Tarsus was wise. His wisdom was shattered on the outskirts of Damascus. Saul of Tarsus was wealthy. His wealth was scattered on the outskirts of Damascus. All that shattering was saving in its effect. God does mercy, and he, got, he does judgment. And Jesus said, I came into this world for a judgment, and that was to receive the judgment that is due the ungodly. The judge is judged. So it must be seen also that God does righteousness on the earth. And I think we might have to save this for later, but for down the road a few weeks, maybe. It also says in Jeremiah 9.24 that he does righteousness in the earth. He does it. Poyao. Righteousness is something God does. It's something he has done. You know, we've been prophesied about this message today was prophesied about because in Psalm twenty-two thirty-one it says that there is going to come a generation after the finished work of Christ that's going to come proclaiming and saying, God has done it. It'll proclaim God's righteousness, what he has done. What he has done. He has reconciled the world to himself. That's not something waiting. That's something done. It's something waiting to be manifested, but not waiting to be done. It's something that's been done. 
that waits for its manifestation. Right now, it's only seen and heard in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right now, it is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery which God has commanded, the eternal God has commanded be revealed now. In the act of mercy and judgment and righteousness which God enacted in the Christ event and he keeps on enacting it in the Christ spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ. It's like this keeps being reenacted. God's saving act keeps being reenacted. This, why do we meet in church? I'll close with this. Why do we meet for this time? Why do we come here? So we can socialize. So we can do a lot of things except the word. No, we're here for the word and for the word alone. And guess what the word does? Jars us out of our curvature inside ourselves. Jars us into a life outside of ourselves. Extra say in Christo. Jars us outside of ourselves. And where we realize ourselves in Christ and Christ in us. That's why we meet for the word. There's no other reason. It's not a legalistic attention that we've got to pay attention and get to a church service because it's an obligation. It's because it's usually the only place we get jarred out of a curvature inside ourselves, the curvature in adse, and jarred out into an extra say, a life outside of ourselves in Christ. That's called newness of life. In Romans 6, 4, that's called newness of life in Romans 7, 6. It's called, nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm no longer going to frustrate the grace of God because the grace of God is a power superior to sin. And sin bows me over and turns me inside of myself. We're going to find that Romans is not laying the gauntlet. You know what they did when they laid the gauntlet? A knight would take a gauntlet. That's his glove, and he'd throw it at the feet. He was try- it's a challenge to a-, a fight to the death. Romans throws down a gauntlet. You say, yeah, we see. It's thrown down to the strong. It's thrown down to the Jew and the Gentile and the Gentile Christian and the Gent. No, it's thrown down at your feet, at my feet, at your feet. See the three fingers coming back to me. It throws down at my feet. And so the Jew looks at the Gentile pagan and says, look at them. They got the witness of God in creation and they used it. For unspeakable immorality, gross immorality, and idolatry. Look at them. And Paul says, yeah, well, look at you. In Romans 2, 1. You're suppressing the truth in ungodliness by your pretension that you're all right by the works of the law. And the sinfulness of sin is that it takes the holy and good and righteous Torah of God and uses it for its own purposes. So people suppress the truth who obey the law just as much as the people suppress the truth in godless idolatry. And then we say, we look back and say, yeah, well, he's really hammering the Jewish Christians. He's really hammering the Gentile Christians. And then he says, reckon yourselves to be dead 
unto sin. When you get to Romans 6, the gauntlet's thrown at our feet. It's the old person, the old man, the antiquated, obsolete, useless person that we once were, that we put off, and we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The gauntlet isn't thrown before the Gentile or the Jew. The gauntlet is thrown before you. So this is what the Jeremiah fans out. I've got, well, I've got a lot more stuff here, but I had to start with what God awakened my ear to today. So I think I'll leave it at that. So just in case you wonder why we meet, it's so that we can be awakened. Salvation is the initial awakening by God out of ourselves. Salvation continues and sanctification continues and even rectification continues as the Holy Spirit keeps us awake. So awake, you sleeper, and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Ephesians 5.14. Thank you, Father, that you've shown us why we come to church We're here to be jarred out of the curvature in ourselves and jarred into a life outside of ourselves, a newness of life that comes through resurrection from the dead. We are to count ourselves as crucified with Christ and alive to God, even as Christ died to die no more and now lives to God. We consider ourselves to have died with Christ, and now we are alive to God. Thanks, Father, for the ticket to boast for the right to brag that we know and understand you because you do mercy on the whole earth. And this is reflected by Jesus Christ who was hung above the earth between heavens and earth to illustrate that your reconciliation is of all things in the heaven and the earth. Thank you. We see you now, Father not forsaking or abandoning your son at Calvary. We see you in Christ, reconciling the world to yourself, not imputing the world's trespasses to them.